From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Jennifer Cation Armstrong returns to the show this week. She's the author of many fine books, mostly on the history of television. She's written biographies of TV series Mary Tyler Moore Show, Seinfeld, Sex and the City, The Mickey Mouse Club, and the stunning history, When Women Invented Television, the untold story of the female powerhouses who pioneered the way we watch today. Jennifer Cation Armstrong is also an educator and a Substack contributor with a thing called Culture Trip, which is great. She used to write for Entertainment Weekly, where she covered a show called The Apprentice. Not the famous version of the show with Arnold Schwarzenegger, but an earlier version that was hosted by some forgotten New York big shot. Jennifer Cation Armstrong's new book is So Fetch, The Making of Mean Girls and Why We're Still So Obsessed With It. Jennifer Cation Armstrong, welcome back to From the Bookshelf. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all the time we have. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you've been working. You've been doing so much work. And I didn't even mention your uh, uh, pop divas, which is also a book I love of yours. It's, I always love that you love that book. I love <laughs> that we share that because it's. It, I, I really enjoyed that doing that book. So um, I always, you know, it's like what your baby is. It's always so fun when someone else shares your enthusiasm for something i just heard on the news that times person of the year is taylor swift yes did you get to see taylor when she was in town i did not actually i tried both that and beyonce and was shut out so i but i did like opening weekend i saw both of the movie movies yeah versions and just really loved them both i won't go too far into it but um you know i just thought they were such displays of like feminine power for that you know it's just like both are so overwhelming is the thing I thought with Taylor's I was just like oh this woman just set you know threw herself a three plus hour party to say like just in case we weren't clear about my cultural domination (laughs) here it all is and this woman has been unescapable this year so I thought I thought that was a great choice and they wanted to choose someone who brought joy instead of like some dark you know New newsmaker and I thought that was just such an inspired choice because this woman literally like took over all corners of the of pop culture even the NFL this year that's right that's right oh I, <laughs> I, I I went to see Doja Cat in concert recently and she was so dark and it was really like not pleasant yeah I mean Taylor's is really I mean it's not surprising because we all just know her vibe anyway but like and that's not to say she never writes sad songs or whatever but just the overall vibe, right, was just such, it was so, I I remember even posted something the day I went and said something about just like getting like a shot of like pure joy. You know, it just was such an uplifting experience. And I felt similarly about the Beyonce one too. Like both are so in, just awe-inspiring. Like what both of these women have built is you know, it really was, it was, it's been said already, but it's such a year of like the pop woman with these two and Barbie kind of like floating the economy essentially. And even Britney yeah. Spears is like a multiple number one New York Times bestseller at this point. And so it just has been, I didn't I really hear, expect it, but I heard, I heard that the audio book of, of Britney Spears read by Michelle Williams is really a great performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And it's a great book. Like I'm, you know, I'm a Britney fan anyway, but um, I truly feel like her particular story is so it's sort of it actually is important as opposed to like 
you know, some other more typical pop stars, like she really has been through it. And we really didn't know what was going on from her perspective. So it's such a like tour de force of like, not necessarily writing, but of self revelation. And I loved, I mean, I never knew that was, that was something I didn't know I needed, which was like Michelle Williams reading. Uh, so <laughs> Britney Spears. I, I have it on my list. I will get to it. You know, I, I have to read the things for the show and I hardly have any time to read things. Yeah. I mean, but I only pick things for the show that I want to read. Like for instance, completely, uh, completely. So the making of mean girls and why we're still so obsessed with it. So uh, Jennifer Cation Armstrong, I have to tell you, I had never seen mean girls or paid any attention to it. Um, I mean, I kind of knew that there was a movie and I, I, I kind of confused it, I think with clueless that I've also never seen. And I know yeah. that those movies exist, but I don't know. They're just not in my world so mm -hmm. before i read your book obviously i had to watch the movie so i um my wife and i sat down and we watched and enjoyed very much the movie and then it seems like your timing is perfect on this movie because i was watching a football game the other day and there was a commercial and on the commercial was samantha seyfried and the other girl whose name i can't remember and they were recreating their roles from thing and then a couple of uh, I almost said innings. A couple of commercials later, there was a commercial for uh, a, a sequel to uh, Mean Girls. Yes, yes, it is. It is very omnipresent all of a sudden, and in part, there's some reasons for that. Like, it's not just pure luck to some extent. You know, the 20th anniversary is coming up in uh, the spring, so I think probably we were all on the same page with that. And um, I don't know why they decided. I don't know if that's the reason or something else that they decided to do the uh, Walmart ads, but I right. got to tell you, the Walmart ads are so good. Yeah. That was the part that I, I kind of heard they were coming, you know, it's like quote reunion of three of the four main stars. But um, so I was kind of, I, but I wasn't really like, I was like, oh, that's nice, whatever. And then when I saw the first one, I was like, oh, they did this. Like they created essentially a commercial sequel to mean girls these are the mean you know the the main characters of mean girls grown up and like working at the school and being moms and all of this stuff and gretchen's in particular is just like next i was actually did so i didn't get anywhere with this but i was actually doing research i was like who wrote these walmart ads like they're so <laughs> i didn't expect them to go so far i like i posted something on tiktok that everyone that went nuts that just said like is this canon now um because it's like they imagine Gretchen's husband and her children and the, like it's it's really they were so incredible it was incredible to see both the care that they put into them and kind of also the reaction to them was so strong it's clear that people it just reflects everything that I found in my research which is how much people still care about this thing. Well, and I thank you for making me watch it because then I was able to uh, get the joy of seeing those commercials because otherwise I would have said, who are those? What, what's Amanda Seyfried doing there? What's the That's movie? a really good point. I don't even know what you would make of those commercials if you didn't, <laughs> no if you movie. hadn't seen the movie. I hope also we, maybe we unlocked a few. I feel like it has a lot of um, quotes that have become memes as I talk about in, in the book. Um, so I hope maybe, maybe there's a few more memes. You'll suddenly be like, oh, I get that one now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, I think you know this, but I was a middle school teacher for, uh, 30 years. And so I lived in the world of, of mean girls and, and, and kind mm -hmm. of the period in which it occurs. That is, um, you know, I, I got my students, they were like 11. And then when they went away, 
they were 14. So like that period of time in which they develop the personalities that lead to the mean girls uh, scenario. And, and uh, you point out in your book that it all began with, with this woman, Rosalind Wiseman, who's an educator. And she wrote this book, um, queen bees and wannabes helping your daughter survive clicks, gossip of boys and the new realities of girl world. And how did that nonfiction book end up being Mean Girls? Yeah, that's one of my favorite facts about this, right? Is that um, I'm always interested for obvious reasons when something comes from a book. I want to hear from the person who wrote the book. I want to know how that happened. And this is particularly strange. I actually even remember at the time when this was announced, me hearing this and being like, that's weird. You know, Tina Fey is going to adapt Queen Bees and Wannabes into a movie. And I was like, okay, good luck to her. Um, <laughs> you know, like, I, I just thought that's very strange. Um, but yeah, this book was a huge sensation. It was actually a sensation before it even came out. There was a big New York Times magazine article about it and about Rosalind. And it kind of followed her around doing her work, which is essentially going to schools and talking to girls about these issues. And that was how she put together her research and the book which kind of is a parenting guide essentially to having a tween or teenage girl going through this stuff. So, you know, um, what happened was Tina Fey saw the article and she loved it. She was just like, Oh my God, this is like these stories, right? Even the anecdotes just in the article are so incredible. It reminded her of her own tween and teen years. And she just thought like, which I, something I really love about this is that she kind of, picked up quickly on how this was sort of the dark side of girls, right? And this is not necessarily something we saw a ton of, like you'd see some bullying and so, you know, that stuff in, in high school movies, but she was very interested in the way that this was kind of this spiky, you know, side of adolescent girls. And she related to it because she had both, she had experienced both sides of it really essentially is what she has said as a girl that you can kind of imagine, imagine a young Tina Fey, you know, she was snarky even then. And she, she says that that's kind of how she developed her humor even is because she was like, well, I'm going to either be a victim <laughs> or I'm going to wield power. And so while she doesn't necessarily say that she was like the queen bee, she was, she would kind of like wield her wit against people. And so that was what she liked about it. And so she was looking for something to adapt into her first screenplay. And she seized upon this and has also said that like she hadn't quite thought out the implications of, you know, adapting a nonfiction parenting guide into a narrative film, which she, if you think about this, she had only ever done sketches on Saturday Night Live. So she was up against a big challenge here. She's got a parenting guide with a lot of good anecdotes and she has never, ever done even more than three minutes of narrative much and there's less. no story structure and there's no right two hours <laughs> yeah so she had to work hard at it but i will also say i was really surprised because i hadn't read queen bees until doing the book mm. um i was actually surprised by how much raw mean girls material was it brought directly from queen bees things like drawing the map of the clicks or naming the clicks or the the very famous on Wednesdays we were pink right yeah. comes not exactly directly but there's a there's what a couple of anecdotes in the book where girls explain they have elaborate 
um, rules within their groups about what you can wear on which days and how casual you can be. You can't have your hair up more than one day a week. You can only wear jeans and sweats on Fridays, like all of this stuff. So there was actually a surprising amount there, but I can also see how there's a big gap between that and making characters and narrative structure. Well, I want to kind of jump ahead because now you've, you've uh, piqued my interest in this part of it. Um, Rosalind Wiseman is not a overly rich woman as a result of the success of this thing. And I mean, not, not only was it a successful movie that you write about, but it's been a, a, a television series, a Broadway show, uh, and now a movie sequel. And she's not really in the loop of money. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this is something to be honest, we hear about kind of too much, right? It reminds me a little of like the music industry and how many exploitative contracts are there too. No one ever knows when something is going to become a major hit. And so I think we don't have as many protections in places we should. And, you know, so many things that get adapted, like get optioned, don't even, you just kind of all, I talk amongst my friends where it's like, we all assume nothing's ever going to happen with these options. So you're like, great, I got an extra five grand or whatever. She got a pretty good chunk of money out, you know, outright. Um, I think it was something like $40,000, but like, um, there were, it wasn't a good contract overall. And she actually jokes that like, well, the one good thing I did is everyone uses my contract as what not to do, you know, example of what not to do now. (laughs) But so she did get paid for the movie itself, you know, the, the option. Um, Paramount claims that there's a lot, they can do tricky math in movies. And so she was supposed to get a, you know, kind of quote the profits or something to that effect. And instead, they just claim there have never been any profits, which, which no one thinks could be true. But like, right. who How knows? They, they do tricky. You know, I said, they, like I said, they do tricky accounting. Oh, the expenses are this or whatever. And then um, kind of the her for her, the breaking point, she kind of was like went along with all of that until it kept going, <laughs> you know, until, right. you know, something like 13 or 14 years after the movie, all of a sudden there's a Broadway musical that was pretty successful. And as we know, subsequently, that is now has now been turned into a film, which is, you know, imminently premiering. And so that was where she really kind of tried to at least stand up for herself a little more. I don't know that she's been very successful, but she essentially like tried to partner with the musical on Broadway. They went along with it for a little while and then kind of cut her out. And she's gotten no money from any of that. And furthermore, another thing that really bugged her was that she went to try to make her own stage show based on her own book and was told she couldn't do it. Because she didn't own the rights to it. She had signed away theatrical or I whatever they call the technical ver- you know, technical term rights to this thing. And this is, this has been very disappointing for her. And she said, you know, she really just only, she doesn't want anything else. She just wants to continue her work with kids, but it just felt so unfair to her at some point that this had happened. And she, so far, I don't, as far as I know, she has not gotten it anywhere with her efforts. It's disappointing to hear that because, uh, you know, I like Tina Fey a lot and I think Tina Fey wouldn't be where she is today if not for Mean Girls. I mean, it really launched her beyond Saturday Night Live. Yeah, she was, um, Rosalind felt very disappointed that she tried to reach out to Tina and did not get very far with that. 
I'm sure Tina Fey has lawyers who are telling her <laughs> to do things or not do things. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure that's what's going on. I'm, I know when things get big like this, everyone kind of clamps down and wants to protect things. And I do think what's so interesting is like what you said is that I don't think we knew this was going to happen at first, but it seems like with the 20 years of retrospect, we've started to realize that this might be the most lasting part of Tina Fey's legacy as huge as she is, as I think she's possibly the most, or definitely one of the most influential um, comedic voices of the last 20 years. And, but the thing is like Saturday night live, her work there, it can't really, you know, nothing on SNL lasts as you know what I mean? It's, it's supposed to be ephemeral. It's of the moment. I think 30 rock is brilliant, but I think it's, less part of the conversation than say mean girls you know mean girls you didn't is write a book universal. about 30 rock yeah well um speaking of that um just to take a minute and talk about sort of the diaspora of lauren michaels like when you look at show business in the last 50 years how many stars have come from lauren michaels program it's really incredible i mean from john belushi on just so many movie stars Absolutely. Um, I actually just read a book. It's not out yet, but I just read a fantastic book about the Blues Brothers and was, I thought it was so funny. I just read it and blurbed it. And at first I was like, well, I I understand why I make sense for a blurber because I like wrote about Seinfeld and stuff. And then I thought like, actually, this is exactly like Mean Girls in its own (laughs) way, right? It's, I think the first, yeah, I mean, it was so near the beginning of SNL. Um, It's the first time that this happened, but Lauren Michaels is brilliant in so many ways. And one of those ways is that he started his own production company, Broadway video, I mean, movie production company to specifically essentially like catch them as they're, you know, like he tries to, he doesn't end up owning everything. Like there are people who have, have gone a different way and not ended up with him. But for the most part, it was really Broadway videos whole raison d'etre was to sort of like say, well, you have a place. If you want to make movies, make them with me. Don't run off and make them with someone else when I'm the one who made you a star. And so he has, you know, he has a read a lot of different things about people's feel, you know, people have very different feelings about him and about working with him and for him. But, you know, the people who do like it, like Tina seemed to have a really good relationship with him and this allow you know it's like allows them to kind of have their creative visions to let right he's he hired her for her comedic voice so he's not going to make her do something else she was able to just come with come to him with this idea while she worked at snl and say i want to adapt this book and he was like let's get it for you you know what i mean like it kind of almost has this godfather like aspect to him and you know by all accounts at least on Mean Girls, like he was, he was a very, um, he was present, but not overbearing. Um, he, I think allowed them to do, you know, they got, think of all of those adult um, cast members in Mean Girls. So many came from SNL. All of them are brilliant. Yeah, They're yeah, all brilliant stuff. comedians. And it's because of Lauren that they got them. Yeah. I mean, uh, the, 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 the people who've come out of there, it's really so uh, remarkable. I was, watching Tootsie the other day and mm-hmm. that's like one of Bill Murray's first important mm-hmm. roles and uh, of course Animal House and uh, so many uh, you know so many great things that have come out of there and, and I can't think of any um, any historical figure in show business past 
that would be so responsible for launching so many, so many careers. Exactly. Amazing thing. So um, Mean Girls also launched the careers of a bunch of actresses who went on to, and actors, but mostly those as women. I mean, Amanda yeah. Seyfried. I thought Amanda Seyfried's first thing, the first thing that I had ever seen was Veronica Mars. Okay. And, and I like her so much. I think she's a wonderful actress and she's really grown as an actress. She's so good. And uh, and to see her there, that was before Veronica Mars, right? Yeah. It was. It was just before. But they, they're kind of in like, they're real close together in terms of when they came out. Um, I wouldn't have been able to tell you which one was which until I wrote this book. I was uh-huh. aware of her in both. And she just has a very specific presence, which I thought was fun how much people talked about this in the book, right? Is that she has this kind of, I remember they kept using the word like spooky, um, that she has, she has this sort of ethereal spooky vibe to her where you're just like, I don't know what her deal is. And I think that makes that character I can't imagine it's like this is how it always ends up in iconic movies, but it's just so hard to imagine anyone else. I think she brings a really specific vibe to it. Like, yeah, she's supposed to be dumb, but I don't know. Like the dumb thing almost, I can't decide if it's a ruse or a something, right? It almost, it feels like her character has more depth to her than she's just a dumb blonde. It takes a smart actress to play a dumb person. Uh, Marilyn Monroe is a perfect example. Exactly. Uh, in, 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 if you remember, in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, um, she says something like uh, to the father and her future father-in-law, she says, I'm not marrying him for his money. I'm marrying him for your money. And, <laughs> and he says, so you admit it. And she goes, well, don't you think, you know, being rich is the same as a girl being pretty? You know, uh, I uh, everybody has to bring something to the, you know, to the relationship. And he says, wow, you're really smart. And she goes, yeah, most men don't like that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I think that that something you bring up in the book that possibly Amanda Seyfried's character is playing dumb herself, that she wants to, she she's assumed that role and she's not really dumb. That's, that's my elaborate theory that, you know, who knows, I'm probably overthinking it, but <laughs> um, she has said, I guess I took it partly from Amanda herself, who had said like that she personally did this in high school is that she would kind of just play dumb to stay out of the drama. And I love that idea. It's like, it's like this character figured out, oh, I'm hot. And so they want me in this group. Right. And my, if my, if I can just play dumb, I can like stay out of Regina's way. Like she never gets in Regina's way, really. That's right. She just kind of like is there on the outskirts and she's not having conflict with her the way that Gretchen is, right? Gretchen is sort of wants so wants her approval so badly that she almost she ends up in conflict with her. Whereas like Karen's just floating through it all and having a perfectly good time. And I so enjoy, I really enjoy that, um, that performance of hers. I just think. I think she gives you the sense that there might be something more going on. Whereas I, I think some other actresses might've just been like, Oh, it's just a dumb blonde joke. I had, uh, um, it was a rainy day and I went to a movie and I saw the remake of the parent trap. And I, mm-hmm. I said, well, I don't even want to see this because I love Haley Mills and I love the original mm-hmm. trap and how could it be good? But I don't know there's nothing to do. So I'm going to go see it. And I was so impressed with Lindsay Lohan. I thought she was really remarkable. Um, little actress you know she was i don't know 11 or 12 or something when she did the part 
and uh, maybe she was older, but she seemed younger. Right around there. She was age appropriate, I think. Yeah. And um, I thought, oh, I'm going to keep my eye on her. And um, and I did, even though I had never seen Mean Girls. I saw her in Robert Altman's, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, I forgot the name of that thing, you know, the Garrison Keillor. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and she was really, with Meryl Streep or something, she was really good in that. And um, And then, you know, I started to, I don't read. I used to read Entertainment Weekly when you mm-hmm. were writing for it, but I don't read like uh, people or whatever. That right. um, and I don't know anything about anybody's gossip. But you couldn't avoid that gossip because it was just like everywhere. And it was very sad. And, uh, you know, I think that it's it's the, sort of the saddest part of your book that Lindsay Lohan is not today one of our top actresses, or she should be. Absolutely. I, wa- I rewatched, I mean, maybe not everything, everything, but like kind of her three big ones leading up, you know, Freaky Friday, Parent Trap, um, you know, all of that, like leading up to Mean Girls, just as research for this, I rewatched them. And I just think she is extraordinary. I think she's extraordinary. She's really at the top of her game in Mean Girls, because it's like she had to get to that age to kind of really, and it's actually pretty complicated part. Oh, yeah. She really changes a lot. And she's playing a very you know, the, the idea that she is a spy who then, you know, kind of mm-hmm. becomes the thing. And uh, the and the way they use her hair to sort of talk about her um, evolution to evil. <laughs> I love how much hair is, is a theme in my book. Yeah. <laughs> I love it so much. Like um, the director, Mark Waters, who is by all accounts, I mean, it truly my experience with him and everyone I talk to, like one of the nicest men in Hollywood, like and it's so a rare in a director, right? Um, and this man, you know, got everything done by everyone liking him on set. But the one obsession he had was hair, right? That was the one thing where he would just be like, I need you to make that hair look different. It needs to look better. Um, and the problem was, of course, it's like this simultaneous where like he knows he needs it a certain way, but he's not sure. Like, it's not like he's a hair expert, you know? Um, it's just that he would be like, needs to not look like that. It needs to look a different way. It needs to look better. Um, there's so many stories about hair in that, in my <laughs> book, because of that movie, because that's, you know, and that one in particular with Lindsay, right? There's that great anecdote that he told me about how she kept wanting to curl her hair. Like she wanted to look more glam earlier. And it, they kept explaining to her, like, you have to be less glamorous at the beginning. So you have somewhere to go in your evolution and she just wanted to look hot because she's like 16 and this is just, right, right. that's I totally get that too she's looking at the other girls and like why can't I be hot like Regina and so there's one part where she actually she's still supposed to be like beginning Katie right straight hair Katie and um just they could not stop her and they took a break and she in the though know, they hadn't finished a scene and she went and curled her hair <laughs> and Mark was like, you can't, you're going to look, that's going to look insane on camera. We can't have be cutting to you sometimes with your big hair and sometimes not. And you're still supposed to be beginning Katie. And he kind of, it's like one of the times he sort of yelled at her and she started crying <laughs> and to like not only do the hair over, but also the makeup. So now it's taking even longer um, so yeah, they definitely had a number of hair moments, uh, but I love that idea. And it's, what's funny is we just talked about Rosalind's book and this actually comes from the book to some extent too, is that like they, the girls in the book talk about the power of hair. The power of hair. Well, I mean, I think it's always been a thing. I used to have hair. It's all gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was so beautiful. I have to send you a picture. Uh, 
Um, but um, the, uh, the when I was just, uh, when I was a kid, they made before a hard day's night. A hard day's night was kind of a, a breakthrough movie because it was made by people who really knew what we wanted, you know, rather than suits who made movies for kids that they thought young people wanted to see, like beach party movies and things like that. And the teenagers in those movies were always, you know, 35 years old. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> and on, <laughs> on TV, too, you know, uh, they were always old, you know, in, in mm-hmm. room 222. I think every kid on the show was 25. Completely. Um, I mean, all the way through to 90210, right? They yeah, all right. right. <laughs> 36-year-old, 12th grader. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and to a certain extent, that's true in Mean Girls as well, but it's done more convincingly. But Lindsay Lohan really was a little kid. Yeah, she was a teenager. She was she was true age in that movie. Um, Amanda was close to um, those two were both still underage. So they were both still like with chaperones, Yeah, um, and which which also meant child labor laws. Uh, that's another reason they do this is that child labor laws make it very difficult to have shooting schedules um, if they're minors. So the the trick is, I, I you know, just cast more like 18, 19, 20 as teenagers. Right. Because then so. um Rachel was old, was the oldest. She was 25. And there were real serious, as you know, from the book, there were real serious discussions about whether that was okay or not. Um, that was, she was the oldest among the core cast and um, they really were not, you know, there was definitely people within the filmmaking group who were like, we can't do this. She's too old. And what I liked though, was that Mark Waters, the director said that, he wasn't sure either. She had actually originally read for the role of Katie, which is such a like mind blowing. Yeah. They actually were reversed. It was that Lindsay wanted to play Regina and Rachel came in and read for Katie. And he was like, this is, he told her in the audition, like, you're too old. This isn't going to work. No. But then they brought her back in for Regina. And when she read with Lindsay, what he said was he loved it because it was the only time he saw Lindsay get a little scared of someone else. Like she was a little bowled over by, Rachel's presence and he was like oh and what he said is and he had worked with her in Freaky Friday and he knew her very well and he said you know that the thing about Lindsay is she's just like a force of nature and she bowls over every room so of any age of people so when he suddenly saw this dynamic of like oh she's actually a little intimidated by Rachel that was what he really liked and it makes sense right that if somebody's going to play with Regina if somebody's going to be the oldest it should be Regina and there really was a genuine, that's a genuine age difference, like 25 to 16, yeah, so. 17, 18 is big. Okay. And, she, you know, Rachel was sort of on her way, even though she wasn't a huge star yet. But she was and, an adult. And, yeah, and she lived living. in Canada, which was which is where they shop. But the rest of the cast had to like live in a hotel where she was going home to her boyfriend. And kind of there was even this divide. And I wonder, it's, it's impossible to ever know, but it's like, it's interesting. It's like, I wonder if that itself played into the dynamic of like she's the older girl I mean I can imagine if I was 16 17 years old and Rachel McAdams was 25 and I was hanging out near her I'd be like she's so cool oh my god <laughs> you know of course, and it does work I mean I didn't I never questioned it until I read your book and found out uh but you know it, it, it's 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 nice to see the authenticity of someone like Lindsay Lohan and uh, Amanda Seyfried in the in the picture and the boys too all seem young, although I guess they're not quite. They're close. Young. They're close. They're not like they're not super old. They're all most of the other kids are under twenty five. You know, they're in that 
like everybody playing like the high school essentially is in that 18 to to 24 range for the most part well i i don't think i'd ever really been aware of lizzie kaplan until i saw mm. masters of sex which was a show i really enjoyed and she so was good. fantastic on it and she sang on an episode and she showed what an amazingly talented woman she is and i've seen her in things since and i was just so delightedly surprised to see her <laughs> in her role as janice ian I love the fact that her name is Janice. I know, right? It's such a good joke that probably no one of the age range who watched the movie, the movie got. Get, but... yeah. <laughs> At 17 was Janice Ian's big hit. Um, how, how, uh, how did she evolve into the Lizzie Kaplan we know um, from that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of people have had that delightful experience of kind of like going back and watching it and almost like not having realized it was the same person. She looks significantly different but she's still recognizable because she still has that voice like there's a there's a voice and a tone to her that she often has I think it's what's weird is she looks very different in something like Masters of Sex but she still often plays a kind of like a certain kind of smart cool girl right which is witty sardonic all of that stuff and you know you can kind of imagine um anyone like that sort of in high school being like this weird artsy girl right who's who's she's an outcast on purpose right that's sort of the beauty of Janice is she's the one person we have in that movie who is at least giving the sense of not giving a crap about you know but like she's the anti-Regina and I mean she has to be right and she dresses different from everyone else um and one of my favorite things that I learned in the book was just how like she came in looking like her, like normal Lizzie Kaplan and everyone come, like they couldn't, you know, it's Hollywood. They all can't deal with like, she's too beautiful. She can't play this role. She's too hot. And then no one could figure out like how that, this can't be true. And she just said like, listen, I'll goss myself out. Don't worry about it. Like I know how to do this. So she just came to the first table read, um, they kind of trusted her on it, but then she came to the first table read, gothed out, and they were like, okay, this is going to be fine. You know, like, she's got this. But How old I love that. She was in the picture? Was she a teenager? I'm not, exa- like, early 20s yeah. is, is what I remember. And I do also love, like, there's so much about this. I guess it's not surprising. This must happen on a lot of high school movies. But the, you know, they have a whole high school, right? They, they right. cast a whole high school. And it really took on in a lot of ways It took everybody took on a lot of the dynamics of this. So like I said, for instance, you know, Rachel is kind of like the cool girl going off to live her own life. And like, she'd go out for drinks with the crew, like, because she's 25, she can go out for drinks. Um, You know, whereas some of the other younger kids, even the ones who are technically, you know, over 18, but like they would all kind of gravitate toward each other. And, but something I really loved is first of all, the way, like, Lizzie and Daniel Francesi, who plays her best friend in the movie, Damien, they're a little unit and they got along together, right? Like they had to, right? Those two had to have chemistry and they did. But then so many people mentioned to me, like, especially you may have gotten this impression from my book, but one of my favorite things, because I always like weird untold stories and the people on the peripheries. I am obsessed with like the Canadians who played the high school. (laughs) <laughs> essentially they play they essentially cast all of these local canadian kids as the high school kids and all these high school kids get at least one killer line because it's mean girls and so they all had their moment 
But most of them just for the rest of the time have to be like, here I am in the cafeteria again or whatever, you know, and they had assigned friend groups and the whole thing. And so many of the Canadians mentioned Lizzie and Daniel to me as like, they're kind of safe go-to, like, who are the people you want, you like wanted to go have a cigarette with the most? It was always like Lizzie and Daniel, you know, oh, and I didn't know who else to go talk to. I went and talked to Lizzie and Daniel because like, and they were just, they had just enough experience that they could like regale them with a few cool Hollywood tidbits, you know? So they seemed like they knew a little bit more, but they were still accessible. And I loved that. I just loved that everything kind of, and so many of the boys really idolized Jonathan who plays the cute love interest. It's just very interesting how much the dynamics start to mimic the dynamic that they set up in their characters, even though everyone is very nice and, you know, like mingled with each other. But I just still love how it it creates, it's interesting, the group dynamics that happen. Well, I love the Jennifer Armstrong way in which you follow each of these one line people through their rest of their lives and the next year. <laughs> And uh, and you're in, in your new book, So Fetch, The Making of Mean Girls and Why We're Still Obsessed with It. Well, um, you, you must have uh, uh, talked to a lot of people who were there to, to get all these stories. Who did you talk to? Um, I did. Ta- I talked to a lot of cast and crew. Um, crew was amazing. I, Mark Waters was incredible. Like I said, uh, the director, he just really... He was so helpful, you know, like was not he excited only this, that you were writing a book. He about, was, I think uh-huh. so. Um, it's the only reason I can think of for people to be so like helpful and nice is that they're excited. Um, I think he does see this as his legacy movie, and um, also he is lovely and nice, and also like this is one of those people where I would have to go to him over, you know, many many emails where I'd be like, "What did you mean by this? Or what happened then? Or where was the? Where did this happen? Or whatever?" And he was always so, you know, helpful with more information. And, you know, there's so much like if you the costumes are so important. Costume designer was made. The the casting director, Marcy Luroff, um, was also super excited too. She's like, no one ever talks to casting directors. But I I just thought like <laughs> this movie and really any anything that becomes something bigger, it usually comes down to casting, right? It's usually yeah. something lasting. It usually comes down to casting. And she just did an incredible job. Um, talk to a lot of Canadians. The Canadians were so lovely and nice. And like you said, I am always interested in, it's very similar. It reminded me a lot of Seinfeldia. It's like, I'm very interested in it's the, like the ways, especially the internet have warped and warped fame have made different kinds of fame. Um, you know, I talked to a lot of these people who essentially became memes for what could be the rest of their lives we don't know how long this is gonna last but it's lasted so far yeah and most of them became more famous they felt they felt a bump they felt like things are normal i was once in a movie people probably don't even remember that i was in it and then all of a sudden in the late 2000s people are like coming up to them on the street and as if they're you know rock stars because they had one line in Mean Girls, that, but they all had, like I said, they all had at least one line. And now they have very interesting things happen to them, like where they know when a certain, they get like a surge of messages from people when a certain, when some kind of news event happens and they happen to be chosen 
as the meme people have decided to use to express describe this thing uh-huh. that thing many of them and i've found this also in doing research with like talking to younger people some younger people this is so weird but i'm you know in the in the opening of my book for instance i have some uh middle school girls watching the movie with me and one of them had never seen the movie but she knew all the lines from, and that was because TikTok of TikTok. Things. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of these people too, it's like the, the, the lines have become decoupled at times from, from the context, but people know the girl who says, you know, I have a wide set vagina and a heavy flow. Like, how could you forget that? And so she, and she and I have become friendly and she says like, it's so crazy. Like she's just like baby me, you know, me 20 years ago is famous for this one thing (laughs) and some of them are more recognizable than others too as you know as for any you know this happens to any of us like she just happens to have one of those faces where like she has looked the same at like 10 and 20 and 40 like this is just she is always (laughs) gonna look the way she looks so she's super recognizable (laughs) others are less so um everyone gets it you know they say that anyone who finds out that they're in mean girls people get excited but there's just so many strange stories like this of just like this weird kind of fame that, you know, not, no one could have anticipated even when the movie officially, you know, originally came out that this would be how they were famous. One of the things that's interesting to me, when the production code of the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s died in the 1960s around the time of The Graduate and Bunny and Clyde, and was replaced with the rating system, it was a very freeing thing that censorship had been removed from the movies. But it seems when I'm reading your new book about Mean Girls that the ratings system, in fact, censored the movie. That's right. That's right. The ratings, the, the probably, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of conflict or drama on the set of this film, which, you know, is for good and ill when you're writing a book. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you wish there was a little more. Could there be a like, little more? Yeah. Sorry, everything is like Mark Waters just really upset. They all had a really good time. Um, but one of the biggest sources of ongoing conflict, like in the early part of, you know, in the first half of my book when the movie's being made and about to come out, is this obsession with getting a PG 13, which I think is correct. I don't blame the studio for this, but from from jump, right? As you know, like this is, they buy the script and the first thing they say to her, to Tina Fey, is you got to take out 75% of the swear words and sex. They used to be a lot sexier and swearier. She had written more like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, if people remember that movie. She was going for the R, essentially. And they said, that's not what we want. This is for teenage girls. We need absolute, like this dies if it does not have a PG-13 rating. Hmm. So this became the holy grail for them. So they made a bunch of cuts in the beginning and then filmed it. And then, first of all, get word like, oh, by the way, we really, 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 for various dumb, like, you know, marketing reasons, need to have this film out in four months. And also, fun fact, the ratings board says you are not at PG-13 yet. You're at R. And so they have to go through. And I mean, I actually really enjoy these as a retrospective. I Isn't it always fun to hear, like, we had to change this to this, this, like, dumb double entendre to this other dumb double entendre or whatever. 
my the I think my favorite and probably most people's favorite being that they had to change. There's like a weird. If, I'm sure if people are listening to this, they've seen the movie. But there's a there's a scene pretty early where a boy comes up to Katie because she's new, and it's kind of like sexually, lightly sexually harassing her, right? As a yeah. lack of a better way to say it, because she's new. And he says like, oh, I've heard, you know, I have this survey for new students. Is your cherry popped? Was the original. And we all know what that means if we know what that means. Right. And they actually had to change it. And (laughs) (laughs) Tina Fey came up with, is your muffin buttered? Would you like us to assign someone to butter your muffin? I think this is (laughs) way filthier. It's really because it doesn't. Right. I mean, she just made up something that is disgusting. She made up something. And and if, I mean, it's sort of evocative. You know, it's like, I think if you hear the cherry thing, like I said, you either know or you don't. And if you know, then you're already old enough. And it's sort of just like, because it's a known thing, you just don't think about it that much. Whereas like the muffin buttered thing became famous because it was like, what did he just say? Um, and that to me was such a great example. There's, but there's a couple others. They changed like, there's a line where a kid says to Janice, you know, nice, nice wig, Janice, what's it made of? And she had originally said your mom's pubic hair and yeah. they changed it to your mom's chest hair um there's a lot of these like small things your your mom's chest hair is funnier but it's it's interesting interesting. too i actually think a lot of the times the changes are funnier like this is what i i think it has to do with boundaries and like the more boundaries you put on things sometimes funnier things happen it reminds me of when i wrote the book about the mary tyler moore show so many of the jokes that they changed for standards and practices ended up being funnier that way or even Seinfeld never saying, you know, the word masturbation in the masturbation During contest the masturbation episode. episode. Yeah. But, you know, it is also very, it's always interesting to see what they think is or is not okay. And they really had to go down to the wire. And often, you know, this, this was already in post. So they had to do a lot of tricky editing that I watched closely for in retrospect. And I was like, oh, that's true. We never see the kids say is, you know, is your cherry popped? It cuts away from him when he's saying that and cuts to her reaction, but that's mainly because they had him re-record that line. Um, it, it, during the era of the production code, they had to be creative and in, in working around things um, and uh, and usually came up with some really interesting, uh, I mean, there's many, 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 many great movies that were made under the production code. Um, but uh, despite that, there are a lot of things in older movies that audiences of the day could not have cared less about that audiences today find really offensive. And uh, so like if we showed a movie from now to an audience in the 1930s, they would say, oh my God, this is terribly offensive. And if we see a movie now from the 1930s, we say, oh my God, this is terribly offensive. Um, Very good point. (laughs) And it turns out that there are some things in, in just like we now see when we watch old episodes of friends or Seinfeld, even um, that some stuff doesn't age real well. And there's a, a lot of that. Maybe not a lot, but there's some of that in Mean Girls. Yes, I, I think I just, I've determined, I don't know the exact ratio, but I have this theory now having done this book, because it does seem like most new new generations are embracing Mean Girls while also saying like, okay, there's a couple things we would we would do differently, but like there's some ratio that you have to hit, right? That like too much of that and we're done. We're, mm-hmm, we don't want right. to watch this anymore. Whereas like, I would say the biggest things that come up with this movie are... 
um, the, there's some racial stereotyping with the, um, with the cliques essentially, you know, um, these girls there's, um, you know, and then involving one in particular, you know, the, the sort of joke that the, um, PE teacher slash, um, sex ed teacher is also having affairs with various students, underage students. They are all in the, you know, group of Vietnamese girls, um, that that does not age well at all um that would be i would say those that's like the biggest the biggest one the 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 sort of um i mean bigger issue to some extent but like people just sort of go with it because we understand we're all at various stages of this is um the central issue which is that um this conflict between regina and um lizzie kaplan's character is that uh you know Regina called Janice, said Janice, spread a rumor that Janice was a lesbian. Right. They used to be friends in middle school and then she spread this rumor and then they had this falling out. And that seems to be, you know, that's one where like, you know, I've, I've heard different things. Like I said, some parts of the country, I think this still feels extremely valid. Um, other, you know, I, I interviewed one girl who is a fan of the movie and is, she just, I think, graduated from high school but she is, she graduated from a Manhattan private school. Very important to know. And she's very sophisticated. And she was like, uh, I mean, that part seems so lame. Like I have so many friends who have, who identify as bi. I don't, it's not even a big deal anymore. Um, so, you know, there's varying ideas, but I, I will say that 20 years ago, that still felt, felt pretty valid. I mean, the expression how gay was still in. Exactly. Exactly. And like, you know, um, the character of Damien, like the, he's a big deal in 2004 in itself, because that was kind of the first time. I mean, I, I'm sure, you know, you never want to say first, first, because there's some, uh, something else somewhere, but it it was one of the first major teen movies that had an out gay character. Clueless has a almost out gay character. They never use the word gay. Um, they kind of just make implications. Whereas he is the first time, and not only is he out, but like to be cliche, he's out and proud, right? Like he's out. The Janice says describes him as too gay to function, and he's just like, LOL. Um, like, you know, he's he has no, he's super confident. He people know he's gay, he has no problem with it. So, you know this stuff is still in flux. I think it's going to be really interesting. I've from what I've heard and seen so far to see what they do in this musical version of the movie. I have not seen the full thing yet. Yeah. Um. So I think they're going to, you know, as each iteration, like they, they, they changed some things when they did the stage, the Broadway version. And it is my impression that there were further changing things to evolve on that front. Did you see the Broadway musical? I did. I've seen it a few times. Uh Um, Now, I know you wrote an entire book about this next question that I'm going to ask you, but (laughs) I don't want you to do it in just a minute or two. So uh, Jennifer Cation Armstrong, you know, why, um, why is Mean Girls an important movie worth writing a book about? Yeah. um, I think that a huge part of this is just the endurance, right? Um, Something's happening there. If, not only are we still like the core audience of the movie is still talking about it and referencing it. Right. But that to me, I was even more shocked to learn 
how much it's still catching on with young, young people. Like I said, I start the book with 12 and 14 year olds watching this movie. And I did that specifically because I, I genuinely was like, I need to find out what they're seeing in this. Because it's pretty dated at this point. Very few cell phones, no internet. Mm. She has to make photocopies of the burn book for everybody to see it. Uh, that is not something you'd need to do now. You know, and so it's just like, what are they seeing? And it's it's just what's actually at its core, which is this mean girls concept that never goes away, right? Um, and as I note in the book, it it became, yes, there's the memes, that's part of it. But it's like, you know, people are using this to describe things like Donald Trump's administration, right? This It's not just, the we see it most clearly in these teen girls, but it's it's a dynamic that everyone relates to, no matter your gender and no matter your age. And it was striking to me also that not only are the 14-year-olds of 2023, you know, into it, because they said it's about that, you know, we see this, this is about, we understand this because it, this is what we experience every day in our relationships. And then on the other hand, I talked to Sherry Lansing, who is a legendary Hollywood figure who was the head of Paramount at the time of Mean Girls and greenlit this movie. And she said she greenlit this movie. She was in her fifties because she saw it and she was like, oh no, this, even though we need that PG-13 rating, so that the young girls can see it. I relate so much to this. I went to a board meeting last week where this was happening to me. You know, you can be any age. And she's like, it reminded me of my youth, but it also reminded me of now. And she was like, she her prediction was this is going to be a hit because it's moms are going to take their daughters. And, you know, she went to see the Broadway play with her best friend from high school and was like, we were like teenage girls again because it just keeps, we all relate to this. And I think that's what's going on with this thing is that it helps us explain something. You know, it, it became a phrase that you could say, oh, my God, they're just mean girls. And everyone relates to it. And I think then added on top of that are just things like the incredible quotability, the fact that this all became memes that are omnipresent. All of those things come together to keep it in our lives. But there has to be a core to it that people are relating to. And that's what's happening. And now we're going to see, you know, we're seeing this perpetuation with the Broadway play, the musical movie based on the movie, musical based on the movie. Um, well, that's the things that people want to see the reboots and remakes and everything else of are the things that we sort of want to keep in our lives. And that's clearly what's happening here. Well, like all of your books, it's really a great read and I, I really loved Thank it. You. And, um, and the, uh, the title of the book again is So Fetch. We didn't even talk about So Fetch. We didn't. So Fetch, the uh, making of Mean Girls and why we're still so obsessed with it. And the author, the brilliant Jennifer Cation Armstrong. Thanks so much for hanging out with us on From the Bookshelf. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. 
You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon.